Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Well, hello there, and welcome to Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. My guest today is Sean Akinosi. He's the founder and CEO of Akinosi Chocolate and author of the book, Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul. His company has been named by Forbes as one of the 25 best small companies in America, and Sean himself was named by O, the Opera Magazine, as one of the 15 guys who are saving the world. My previous guest on this show and this podcast and marketing guru, Seth Godin, has said that Sean has built a practice of creating a worthwhile luxury good that directly benefits people. Not sort of, not a little, but directly. So if you're looking for help in making your work and life more meaningful, Sean's the guy in his book is a must read. So I'm so happy to have you on the show, Sean. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Look forward to talking with you. Likewise. And there's so much. I'm always get excited when I am like, I don't even, I normally know where to start. And it's the origin story and learning more about you and your childhood and your dreams back then, because I'm always very curious about that. But I feel like, okay, I, I feel we're going to have to fast forward a lot of that to get into the meaty stuff. So, so tell me about you and your younger years. Where are you from and all that good stuff? I'm from Missouri and grew up in Missouri, That's and that's where our factory is. And uh, these days, I spend a lot of time here and not traveling to the farms, which I did in the, in the uh, before times. In the before times, I traveled to Cocoa Farms four different origins every year since I started the business about 16 years ago. Okay. And, um, but I grew up in Missouri and um, went to college in Japan for a year, Oh my and, God. Oh my God. I, ha- I have to stop you right there. When you yeah. were, first of all, it was my first visit to Missouri not too long ago, just oh. a few weeks ago to Macon, Missouri. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and a uh, beautiful state. I have to say it was very different. I'm, I live in Florida, so it's definitely... Yes, it is very different. Very different, but I love that it really gives you a taste of what the U.S. I'm, I'm not from the U.S., but, you know, it's like, okay, this is what I envision sometimes when I think right. U.S. And living mm-hmm. in Florida is hard to connect to that part. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, Macon, Missouri, uh, north, kind of north central Missouri, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. So that's, you know, where, where I uh, spend a lot of my time um, and where I grew up. But uh, college in Japan, law school in Missouri. I was a criminal defense lawyer for 20 years. I loved it. I specialized in really serious cases. So you were racing in Missouri and then you you share with us, you go, you go to university in Japan. That's like a big gap there. Yeah. Is this something you wanted to do as a child? Was your family no. a traveling family? Tell no. me more. I, <laughs> my, um, you know, I, I spent some time on your website and I have to say, I mean, I looked at really all of it. I've, I've been to every page of your website oh, and it's very you. impressive. And, and, but the thing that really, really struck me is that you give keynotes in English, 
French, Spanish, and Italian. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I, can, I can barely do it in English. Nah. And I was so, I'm so impressed by that. It's just so, that's just so cool. Anyway. Well, I, you went to school in Japan. Come well, on. But I'm I getting mean. there. So I, so I, I, the thing is at the University of Missouri, they had a language requirement for my major and I was taking French and I was doing really poorly. And I was thinking, <laughs> this is not going well for me. And so what I did is I had a choice of like two places to go to satisfy my language requirement. <laughs> so I went to Japan speaking zero Japanese at the time. And I, I ended up, you know, I stayed there for a year. And, and then I, when I came back, I had to take more advanced Japanese, but I did, I satisfied my language requirement. I learned to speak some Japanese and, and wow. now I can, I can order sushi and that's about it these days. But <laughs> that's why I went. I did that. I loved it. And I actually was a pro wrestler was when I was in Japan. My name was uh, shooting Sean Springfield because I'm oh, from wow. Springfield, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And back then, uh, maybe even now, pro wrestling, you know, the sort of costumes and all of that th stuff was a very, very big deal in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, almost had really like a cult following. And so I did that. And I'm not a huge guy, but I was in Japan. And so, wow, that's so um, fascinating. Yeah. My God. And so I, I really enjoyed all of the culture, you know, everything from sumo to professional wrestling. But but anyway, came back and then eventually went to law school and did all that. And I got tired of of that work and I loved it until I didn't. And then I needed to find something else. And that's kind of what the book is about. It's about this, this sort of bridge between one successful career and finding the next thing while still, you know, I couldn't afford to stop practicing law and just, you know, take a a trek, you know, and, and find an ashram in India or something and go, spend, <laughs> I mean, I had a family and have a family and, and, and needed to make money. And so I, I did that a sort of a five-year period of searching and doing my job at the same time. Then I kind of stumbled upon chocolate and I really kind of think it was an answer to prayer. And, uh, that was almost 17 years ago. And it's a very small, Bean to Bar Chocolate Factory. We were one of the first bean to bar people in the United States. My daughter works with me. It's a family business, like your family business. I love it. Yeah. And I, I saw all the nice things that you put about your dad. And I was like, hey, maybe you could talk to my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm telling you something. You are a young guy still. My dad is 87 and he's still very involved. But let's yeah. say that, uh, that he's, uh, yeah. I, I think you're still young and very involved. And oh. to to me, part of the of the beauty of it is uh, to make sure that while he's still here and still, you know, working and all that, that he to acknowledge his work is, is really important. As I'm well, sure it will be for your daughter when you're I a little bit so. older. <laughs> I also let me just say, okay, you're right. I mean, I am younger than that. I'm I'm I'll be 61 next month. And, oh, so there you and my, go. And my daughter has been working with me in this since she was 15. Wow. You know, so and she went to college when she was 16 and then came back and worked in the business. But but the family, and I know you're not going to write these things on your website, but surely <laughs> there's some stress and struggle yes. in your family business. I mean, because I have to say, it's while on the one hand, it's one of the most gratifying things in the world because often, not often, but somewhat frequently, my daughter um, would travel with me to some of these origins and, you know, we would be in Africa together, you know, looking at cocoa beans and, 
And that's a really, really gratifying thing. Now, I have to say, though, there are some meetings that we're in and there's a little bit of this happening and some struggle and strife. And sometimes there might be communication styles that might not, if we weren't family members, let's just say that, that they might not be the way they are. But it's a whole thing. Family business, you know, it's a it's a very um, interesting kind of business model, really, I think. Absolutely not. And I think, and honestly, I totally relate. And she sounds like someone I want to have in my podcast also. That yes, we should do. Would. We should no. do one on, on family business because yes. there's so much there uh, that relates. And maybe that is why I many, many times if I get the opportunity, I go back to telling the story because that inspires me to feel part of that legacy. But I totally see it. You know, it's to to have different visions and to have, and in my case, I always acknowledge this is my dad's vision. So I'm second in command right now or third because I have a, an older brother and we're Sicilian. So there are some expectations there in terms yes, of that. Yes. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, this is the time. And that's why I say, I think in that sense, you know, down the road, there will be other things. But it's also very exciting to see my dad saying, now it's your turn. Now yeah. you run with it. And so knowing where those boundaries are and knowing mm-hmm. that, okay, I don't agree, but this is what I would do if I was you, but you know, you are at the, at the captain helm. So, but I, I so That's enjoyed nice. the, what you say about traveling, the traveling with my father, when we used to do it, we do it less now, but it, those are the best memories. So I yeah. think uh, I would encourage everybody to look into it, but I want to backtrack. You said something yeah. so interesting because I, I can bet money because I've been told this that a lot of people listening to this podcast would say, I wish I could work with my family. I wish I could do what he did. And you say mm-hmm. something, I loved law until I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people commit to their career thinking that you cannot stop loving it. They're like, it's not, you don't have the right. But in, in reality, a lot of people start doing something, you enjoy it, and then either you get bored or you get disappointed and you want to move on. Right. Well, and I think that that issue that you raise is even more pronounced if two things, and they were present in my case. One, it was very hard for me to get into law school because my grades weren't that great. And I just thought that all of my extracurricular activities, and I did have a lot of stuff on my resume by the time I was 20, but that didn't really, the admissions committees in law schools didn't care about that. They cared about the LSAT and your GPA. And both of mine were low. Mm-hmm. And so, and really it was had to do with my freshman year, which was, I, I wish I could take my freshman year back. And I talked to a lot of young people and I, you know, we have a lot of programs. And so but given the work that I do now and the speaking and the students that I'm connected with, I get to tell them, the high school students, look, please, I'm begging you, don't mess up your freshman year of college because you can't get that GPA back. If you do really poorly, you're you're stuck with it. You can have a 4.0 your next two years, but if you don't do well, that's going to be a problem. And it was for me. And so I was rejected from 11 law schools when I applied and it was really dejecting for me. And I didn't know what I was going to do because I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer and this is where the second part comes in. So my dad was my hero. He was a lawyer he died of cancer when I was young. I was 14 mm-hmm. and I wanted to be like him. I wanted to follow in his footsteps. So then combining the, the sort of familial thing, you know, I wanted to be like him and I couldn't get into law school. 
And so I went to work in the commercial real estate business in Dallas, Fort Worth. And I, you know, retook the LSAT at my then girlfriend, now wife, wife's suggestion. Hmm. And I did, I did much better on it. And I was the last person accepted in my class at the University of Missouri, right before Hmm. school started. But I worked so hard to prove them wrong about test scores and grades. I graduated in the top 20% of my class. Wow. And I loved, I loved it. And so when you, when you are someone who you thought this career was your destiny, this, you worked so hard to achieve this in school and just, you know, just the struggle of the first years of the career. And then you've built up this, this, this depth of skill set. And then you decide for whatever reason that you're not going to do it anymore. There's a lot wrapped up in that. Absolutely. A lot wrapped up in it. And there was for me, and as you say, I'm sure for many of your listeners, there's this real struggle of, because of those things that I've just mentioned, you know, the family expectation or my own expectation and the money that I spent on my education and the time to build up these skills, you know, do, do I really just need to stick it out and not give up and just keep doing it? Or do I have a plan to lay that down? And how am I going to stand something else up that will be feasible economically and also that will excite me and be be something I'm passionate about and inspired by? That is, you know, I, I write about this a lot and you know, of course, you would imagine and hopefully that in the last 17 years, you know, my views on this have evolved. One of the things that um, I really encourage people in that situation to do is to really, really do some very deep introspection, either with a professional or really, I think it's, it's pretty challenging to do on your own, I should say. I think it requires a very, very mature evolved consciousness in order to be able to really deeply self-reflect like that without the assistance of a guide or a professional of some kind. But I recommend that because um, one of the things, and interestingly about Japan that I would say is that this is not true in Japan any longer, or I should say it's, 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 it's slowly losing its, its truth. And that is for decades, maybe centuries, well, let's say decades and at least a century. In Japan, when you went to work somewhere, it was for life. That was it. You were at the company forever. In fact, many of the students, when they graduate from college, had basically no skill set. The skills they developed in college had to do with making connections. And you went to work for a you know, really reputable company and you were there forever. And that's not the case now. But in America, you know, we've, we've had this, especially in the last let's just say four decades, we've had this portability of our careers. We can go here, we can go there. And now that's even accelerated. I mean, you, you can pick up and leave after two or three years here and go two or three years there. And we've seen it now. This year, we've had more people quit their jobs than any other year. There, I think there's, there's like four or five million people quitting their jobs every quarter, every month in some cases. And so it's happening, it's happening. And so what I'm what I'm saying is, in all of that, is that we need to stop for a moment and really reflect on what I call the virtue of stability. And I don't, I'm not the one who named it that, but the, the people that I look to 
for that kind of um, reflection is the monks that I that I'm very much connected to near my home at Assumption Abbey, where I'm a family brother and I've been going there for 20 years. It's a Trappist monastery, and they follow the rule of Benedict. And the monasteries around the world world that follow the rule of Benedict, the, all of the monks take something called a vow of stability. I would not be at all surprised if other monastic traditions did this as well, Buddhist, Hindu, wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. And that vow of stability is literally a promise in front of the community uh, when you accept your vow um, that you won't leave. You're, you're in it. And I now believe, and, and it's not new belief, but I really think that there is a virtue in the discipline of stability. And you're, you're probably saying, well, you didn't do that. <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, was, I did my job for 20 years almost. Uh, I, I don't practice law any longer, but I keep, I keep my license. And then I've done this now for almost 17 years. And so, but I do think that the, there, there's a worthy exploration for people who are thinking about quitting, about not quitting <laughs> If, 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 you know, if it's these things, you know, that if it has some of the criteria that I mentioned about. And um, on the other hand, I think once a person has really carefully considered upon reflection and with the help of a professional and in discussions with their family, which I did not do very well, mm-hmm. my wife did not want me to do this move. Mm-hmm. And we've been married now for 36 years, but it was a challenge, you know, in our marriage during those years. I think then with in all in total consideration of all of the things that I just mentioned, if one wants to then jump, then we have a whole other series of questions. If you're ready to leave, okay, leave, you know, then I support that. That is so interesting. Yeah, not without the deep work. That's the thing. I I I if I could encourage the people who are now even listening to this thinking, you know, shoot, I'm gonna quit my job. I'm gonna quit tomorrow. I say, you know, you can, and you can find another, in fact, you can find another job that will satisfy the the reasons that you're thinking about leaving. And we know now from studies why people are, are, are leaving their jobs. But what I would encourage you to do is to go a little deeper than that before you make the move and see if there's not a way for you to find the next thing that might satisfy some of the deeper needs that you have that you don't know that are there. That is so interesting. I love your approach and that advice because it's uh, how you said it is like, I knew I loved it until I didn't. So that's the first realization. So that's like, I want to do it. But then you realize, you know, you have to do some deep work. You say, I stumble upon chocolate. But then you you said probably by an answer to prayer. So I want to go there because I always, with, with the deep work, I also am a firm believer of you have to have some sort of faith. You have to take the famous expression, take the leap of faith. And, and it sounds cliche, but it's really what you have to do because most people find themselves in those five years where you say, I knew I wanted to jump, but I ha- I'm providing for my family. I have to pay the bills. And this is the realm where a lot of people get stuck and afraid of saying, I cannot leave this without having something for sure. But it almost never happens that you're going to jump into something that is giving you so much money that Mm -hmm. you're going to say, oh, no, I'm relaxed now. In in my experience, it never happens to that. So there there has to be some sort of faith or conviction uh, in the mix. 
to make you do that. So I, I would love if you could share like that, what that was answer prayer. Did you always love chocolate or were you praying for something to show up and then you link the dots? I, I'm interested about that. In my early 40s, uh, when I started thinking at 40 what, that I needed to, or in my early 40s, when I started thinking about leaving law, I got to this place where I had to leave it because my body was telling me that I just couldn't do it anymore. And it wasn't a thing. It, was, it wasn't some sort of enlightened thought that somehow defending people accused of terrible crimes was a bad thing because I still believe in, in that work. And I'm grateful for the, opportunity, the opportunities that I had to defend people accused of crime. But what I noticed in my body first, you know, kind of in the nature of chest pains, panic attacks, I didn't know what they were then, but that's what it was. And then also a sort of sense of unfulfillment and that I've done this, I've made the money. I've, at that point, I, had, and I, I never lost a jury trial. I mm. worked very, very hard, very hard. And it didn't seem like work. But at the same time, I was sort of going through a, a spiritual renewal, a kind of reawakening of my faith in a way that was much more healthy and, and uh, much, much more healthy and authentic than in my younger years. Um, just to put a context to that very, very quickly, my dad grew up Jewish and my mom grew up Southern Baptist. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a combination. And we were, I was raised in the Episcopal church. And so I'm um, kind of Catholic light. But when my dad got sick, there was this very um, interesting and strange thing happening, in, even in the Episcopal Church where we went, and that was called the Charismatic Movement. And so what happened is this, this group from the church of, let's say, 15 people would come over and lay hands on my father, say that he was going to be healed, speak in tongues, yell. And it was just very unsettling for me. All of that was, and I was like 13 at the time you know, 12, 13, 14. But the leader of the group told me, don't ever talk with your dad about death because if you do, it will be a sign of weakness and mm. sign of doubt and he won't be healed from the cancer. So when my dad wanted to talk about it, I didn't, you know, I pushed him away and I helped take care of my father because my mom just couldn't do it, you know, giving him shots for pain and things like that when I was 13. And so it was really tough. And when he died, I was with him and that was very, very, very tough. And so I didn't have much of a faith after that. I, I would go to church, but I, I, I just didn't, it didn't mean anything to me really. Then fast forward to this time where I'm kind of going through, a, I'm not fulfilled. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. That's when I started going to the Abbey. And interestingly, the Abbey was where my father spent his last night before he died. He, he oh, was wow. married to me. And, mm -hmm. and he had a vision of angels when he was there uh, that I found out about at the funeral. Uh, mm. angels that told him he was going to die. And anyway, so then as I was going through this kind of spiritual awakening and in the monastery, I had this chance to, uh, at the same time, I was starting a grief center for children who'd experienced the death of a parent or loved one. It's still going. It's called Lost and Found. We've served thousands and thousands of children and families uh, in Southwest Missouri who've experienced the death of a loved one. I co-founded it with mm. another person and I'm still very involved in the organization, Lost and Found. Uh, the website's lostandfoundozarks.com. Anyway, but then I also started volunteering at, at, while I was practicing law. I was volunteering in the palliative care department uh, of a hospital. Palliative care is just basically 
hospice in the hospital, people who are dying. And um, I volunteered on Fridays and I would go meet with them and just talk with people who were alone most often and dying and had requested a volunteer to come. And in a way, I was kind of a volunteer chaplain, but not really because I'm not a chaplain, but Mm -hmm. I would offer to pray with people at the end of my visit if they'd like it. And all of them pretty much did want, want, want a prayer. And that was a very sacred um, experience. And all the while, I was searching for this next thing. You know, what, what was it going to be? Was I going to buy a business or start a business? Or, and I was very unsettled about not finding a, something I was passionate about. And I'm still trying cases. And I, I just was very unsettled and you could say depressed and, and, and anxiety-ridden. But these moments in the hospital with patients was a place for me to, as I write about in the book, unmask my sorrow. And Khalil Gibran said, our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And mm. for me, a brokenhearted young man, and then as a brokenhearted adult, I needed to find a place to unmask my sorrow. And that's what I did at the hospital. I did that for almost five years. And During that time, I would have a very simple prayer. Dear God, please give me something else to do. You know, very simple. Mm -hmm. And so the time at the hospital, because I'm a very, and to this day, and then a very type A driven, uh, motivated person, research everything, and, you know, turn over every stone, read every book, talk to every person. You got it. You know, just find all the answers. I wasn't finding them. And I was very wound up about it. But the time at the hospital was an opportunity for me to elongate the present moment and to give me some emotional space that really was something that might not have happened otherwise without that work. Gandhi says, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. It's a paradox, really. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so that's what happened And during that time, not at the hospital, but during those days, is when the idea of chocolate came to me. So no, I didn't really stumble into it. And it was a very sacred message, you know, for me. And I like what you said, you know, you have to have some kind of faith, and then you kind of expanded it. And what I would say is, you don't have to be Christian to have this kind of experience. You don't have to be Buddhist. You don't have to be Hindu. You don't have to be Islam. It can happen if you have this practice, you know, if you find a discipline and a practice that will allow you to experience what Eckhart Tolle calls the eternal now, mm-hmm. you know, can you have this and, and can you build a series of these moments that will sort of accumulate and give you, a, as I said, a kind of elongated experience that really transcends the constraints of time and space. And that's what that is that is deep work, and that's not for everyone. But I do believe that it's the kind of work, not not necessarily my, what I did, but it's the kind of work that will be very um, productive and long lasting as you're searching for your next career or next job. I totally love what you're saying, and really, I can relate. And I and I think the biggest challenge is that the you know I agree and I'm Catholic. I was very Catholic and I practice, but I I have read all the, you know, the Lai Lama books and I, I, I really 
appreciate every faith because I think the basics is the same. It's acknowledging we are spiritual beings. We have a spiritual component. And I believe that because we don't see like it's not tangible, we cannot put like how much I'm making or how how my spiritual (laughs) being looks like. We cannot look at the mirror and see the muscles that, you know, if you exercise a lot. And, And so I think that's why a lot of people, because they cannot touch that part of themselves, they, they don't invest in that part of themselves. And then, you know, just by trusting what people that do spend in that practice and that create, and they mm-hmm. say, there's something here. There's something here because all these little things happen and I cannot explain exactly why, but they happened. And I do believe that probably one of the reasons why you went back to the monastery is because you feel close to your dad there. Absolutely. No. And I was afraid to go there, you know, for all those years. I didn't, I didn't even think about it. Because that's where he was greeted by the angels that told him he was going to die and his family would be protected and that it would be okay, you know, that he, and he died the next day. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really want to experience, I told my wife when I very first went, this is gosh, 23 years ago now, 20, uh, 23 years ago, I remember saying to her back then, before my first trip, I said, I don't, I don't even know what I would say to the angels if they came to visit me. And she said, you are such a trial law. You're worried about what you're going to say. How about mm-hmm. saying nothing? How about just listening? And mm-hmm. which is true. And I would say, going back to one of the things that you, you just mentioned about, you know, so in the Catholic tradition, and even, well, even, let's just say the monastic tradition, many people know who Thomas Merton is. Uh, when the Pope came to speak before Congress, he named four great Americans. One of them was Thomas Merton. And, you know, Merton wrote extensively about what we would call our true self. And the true self is another way of saying our soul. So the, the exercise then is when you look in the mirror or when you um, have these experiences, what can you do? to become aware of your true self, of your soul. And what can you do to recognize what is what Merton called your false self or what others would call, let's just say, your separate self, which isn't really real. Our separate self is not true (laughs) Um, by definition. What is true is our soul, our true selves. And if we can do some things whatever that may be, to both become aware of it. And then once we become aware of it, we want more awareness of it. And then it just continues and continues. But this, I think, is the greatest challenge today for all, hum- all of humanity, is what can we do to become aware of our true selves, our essential nature, And then what can we do to integrate that awareness into our daily lives? And so, for example, you, anybody could go to your website and they could look at the pictures. They could look at what you've said. Let's just say, for example, you said on your website, one of the memories that you love most about your childhood is visiting sites with your father. Okay, that is an awareness that is connected to your true self. Likewise, you have an entire section on your website about your family. You talk about moments with your family. You have pictures of moments 
with your family. That is an awareness, true self-connection to your soul. And obviously, I don't even need to talk to you. I could look at your website and say to myself, this person has an awareness of her true self, her essential nature, and wants to experience that more and more, and then treat others with that kind of uh, awareness. And so this is what I think, again, this is the challenge for all of us. And there are many paths up the mountain. That's why I don't claim to have the answer to all of these paths. So we, we do this and then we have, you know, people in our lives, either friends or professionals or spiritual directors, like this is my spiritual director for the last 22 years, is Father Cyprian. Oh, uh, he's 92 now. Oh, wow. And he's a Trappist monk and he's been kind of walking this path with me. And the reason I say it's important to have a spiritual director or someone like that is because invariably, once we become aware of our true selves, we will have experiences in, that, that um, jolt us, you know, and that make us question our life experience and make us question our very nature. They are these, um, these storms and upsets in our lives that really shake us and make us question everything. And it's important to have a guide along the way with us who can help us not panic and to be patient. And in the Catholic tradition, we call it the Paschal Mystery. And the Paschal Mystery is this, for those of your listeners who aren't Catholic, um, the Paschal Mystery is this idea of death and resurrection, of darkness and light, of valley and mountaintop. And the Paschal Mystery is in the place in between. So the Paschal Mystery is this walking in darkness in the valley, not knowing where the mountaintop is, and becoming afraid and, and losing our way. A John O'Donohue, a great Catholic poet, philosopher, you know, called this place a threshold. It's the in-between place. And there can be a lot of struggle in this place. So you may be a person who's self-aware and you're, you're aware of your essential nature and then boom, the thing happens that shakes you to your core. And this is why we need to have people alongside us in our lives to help us with this and to know that the struggle in the threshold in between place of Paschal Mystery can be the greatest place of beauty, creativity, love, growth than anything else we've ever experienced. And what I'm finding is, is in the midst of a pandemic, this is important information, I think, because many, many, many people around the world are experiencing their own Paschal Mystery as we speak. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and uh, yeah, I love it. The threshold. I, I, I'm a Catholic, but you, you put it in a way where, you know, uh, it's, it makes so much sense. I heard others refer it as the gap, right? The gap between mm -hmm. the noises and where you, where mm -hmm. there's, where there's silence, that gap is where the most potential lays. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's really incredible. So, you know, uh, I mean, 
I, I know now why you've been a guest on Seth Godin's podcast and why Oprah's magazine names you, you know, because you, <laughs> you really are a social and conscious leader. And I think that's where the work we need to do, you know, as a CEO of a company, I try to do the same with my company. And that's why I want to be authentic. And that's why I say, I don't want people to know me because of the company I lead and it's the family business. And I felt at some point in my life, I, I needed to detach while not detaching because I'm still the company. But I, I always felt that people would put me in that box. She works for the family business. And there's so right. much more about me and what I want to do in the yeah. world that I did feel that's why that that uh, website came up during the pandemic at the very mm -hmm. beginning, because it was my way of expressing, yes, all that, but that's only a tiny bit of who I am yes. and what's important talk, to me. You can talk about more things than 5G. Exactly. It's good to be able to talk about 5G. <laughs> but oh yes. And and no, and also to to when you show who you are really and what your soul is like, it's so much easier because all the customers that try to treat me a certain way, they know certain things are not gonna fly because they know what it's priority for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, or where you're dealing with people, they just know who you are and how you're going to react to certain things without even putting you in an uncomfortable position. Mm -hmm. And that has served me so well, you know, but mm -hmm. some people say, why would you put the pictures of your kids? So why would you put the essay in today's day and age? You know, I think it, better things come from being authentic and transparent than from hiding and always thinking bad and all these bad energy thing. You know, I much rather choose to believe there's good energy in the world. And that's what I try to attract. And, you know, if I start thinking I'm not going to say this or that because of the energy that's going to come my way, then I'm surrendering from the get-go. Right. So, so you founded a company that is extremely successful, that has, you know, a social consciousness, a really integral part of it that, you know, it's been described as doing meaningful work. Because you're trying to solve problems, real problems in the world and, and trying to have a positive change. So why don't you share more about the company, what you're doing and really, uh, you know, how you, you made it so successful while bringing greatness to the world? The, the thing that I wanted to do from the beginning was work with farmers. My grandparents were farmers, uh, just, you know, very, led a very simple life, worked really hard and lived near me. And I spent a lot of time with them when I was young. And so they inspire me to work with farmers. And I've done, so I've done that. I have to say when I was a teenager working on their farm, I might not have been the most agreeable <laughs> teenager, you know, but, but I believe I'm honoring their legacy now by how I treat farmers. And so we, we work directly with farmers in two, two places in Ecuador, uh, one near Guayaquil, the other in the South in the Amazon. And then an origin in the Philippines and then an origin in Tanzania. So four origins. Two of the four are led by women. That's by design. That's very important to us. If four out of the four could be, uh, that would be great. My daughter is very, very um, active in trying to elevate uh, women's voices in among farmer communities and her own community in Austin, Texas and where she lives. And But this chocolate that we make is from scratch. And my business only has 20 people full-time. That's it. We make it all by ourselves. The whole thing is 20, 25 people maybe when it's Christmas time. We, we have more employees. But I travel to all these places. And when I travel there, I have relationships with the farmers. I see what's happening. And then over time, as we have this relationship, we see opportunities to partner with them in community development. So 
you know, one thing is just probably a couple of years ago, we passed a milestone of supplying a million school lunches to malnourished children in the Philippines and Tanzania, all with zero donations, no donations, all sustainably provided. And one of the things that we did in, in Tanzania is we, we facilitated the vision of greatness. And I write a lot about writing our own vision of greatness, either as an organization or a person or a family. And, and, um, I learned how to write these visions and facilitate them from Ari Weinzweig, who's the co-founder of Zingerman's Deli. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should have Ari on your podcast. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, he's my friend and mentor. And, and I, we facilitated the vision for the farmers in Tanzania, a 10-year vision, a group of 60 farmers led by a woman. And one of their nine vision points was to have early childhood education in their village. And so we found a donor who wrote a check, $85,000, and we built them a preschool. And the cool thing about it is they run, the farmers run the school, not us. It's oh, their wow. school. You would, if you, if you visited the school, you would find my name and my company name nowhere. Uh-huh. And that's by design. I don't that want it. That is great. I don't want it. And we have over 7,000 boys and girls who have graduated from our after-school program in and around the village in Tanzania since we started it. It's called Empowered Girls and Enlightened Boys. Anyway, I could go on and on, but we have something called Chocolate University in my hometown that we started when we started the business to engage the young people in my neighborhood um, in the fifth grade and then middle school and then high school that small business can be a force for good in the world and that there's a world beyond Springfield, Missouri. And so we've done that. And the high school program is a business immersion program. It's very competitive to be part of this deal. We've done it now for over 10 years. And the students that are selected have a very intensive course in the summer at a nearby university. And then they go home and pack, meet me at the airport and we take them to Tanzania to meet cocoa farmers. And um, this is a very, very important part of what we do. And so what I would say is, and you know, mother Teresa used to say that, yes, she had a vocation, but she would also talk about what she called a vocation within a vocation. And the same would be true for me. So I want to make the best tasting chocolate that I can. I want you to buy the chocolate, not because of the things I've said for the last five minutes or really for the last hour. I want you to buy the chocolate because it tastes good, because uh-huh. it's really, really good. And you find value in this and you find, you find that you want to share it with your friends. And if you like the story, okay, great. If it inspires you and in creating your own story, great. But this idea, the vocation is we want to make the best tasting chocolate that we can make directly trading with farmers, teaching them to be their own exporters, putting money in their accounts. We profit share with the farmers. We open our books to them in their language. So I, you know, our financials are in Swahili. But this other vocation within the vocation is, is working directly with farmers. You know, it's this passionate um, connection and mutuality that we have of, in kinship with the farmers, but it's also working with students. And some would say, well, but that's not about the chocolate. And it's true. And I say this all the time and I have for years. It's not about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. And what I, and of course, you know, if we're feeding young people and, and we're, you know, building preschools, it's not about chocolate, but it is about chocolate. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is all wrapped up together because, you know, the product that we make, the service that we deliver is a result of who we are collectively and as human beings. And so we can't, you know, strip that out and say, oh, well, it's just a recipe. It's not. It's who I am and who my daughter is and who our company is. And so this is what I mean by vocation within a vocation. And uh, that's a 
really long answer to your question. No, it's a, I'm I'm like this is such a treat for me. I feel like oh my god, this is I'm gonna go ahead and have a fantastic day because everything you're saying, it's in my personal you know life. I work with my family, so I can relate to many layers of what you're saying that I know not everybody can relate to. But it's really inspirational. It's really what I think the world should be about. Uh, where it's about the chocolate. It's not about the chocolate, but it is about the chocolate. Right. Right. Uh, to me, it's not about communications, but it is about communication. Yes. Like I, I enable, you know, the telephone to work with the work we do. And then I'm also get upset when I see my kids on the phone. So I'm right. like, <laughs> <laughs> but like I'm making this possible and I don't know if I like it, but uh, it, it just to remember and to remember to that this is why we are here with a mission and a purpose is very, very inspirational. And the work you do, it just once tells me like, oh my God, there's so much to do that I want to do. And I get how you get very excited about it, very passionate about it. And I thank you for that. And I would definitely put all the show notes in the show notes, all the links to your organizations. Where's the best place to buy the chocolate? Online or are they in stores? Where do I I want to try both. Askanosi.com is, you know, we ship all over the United States and uh, now including Hawaii. And uh, so there's also a zip code locator on the website to see if there's a store ne- near you that carries awesome. our chocolate. So that's awesome. the best way. Yes. So everybody out there, let's try this chocolate. It sounds that it's delicious because <laughs> when the owner has that mission in mind and does all the other things, it's going to be great. And I definitely will also um, check out your book in detail because it sounds that it has so much wisdom. And I really want to thank you. Is there anything else that you're excited about that you want to share with us? I'm just excited that we're having the opportunity to talk and share and and uh, I'm looking forward to being able to have the supply chain issues kind of resolve a little bit uh, for all of us in the world. And, and um, you know, that we'll um, just continue on and find ways to treat each other with the kind of awareness that we're trying to have within ourselves. Well, that's, that's great, Sean. And, uh, my, you know, my last question is besides everything, if I, if this is a good chat, my guests always say what they're, makes them tick and what they're passionate about. So it almost sounds like a redundant question, <laughs> but I know that uh, there are other things when you have those down times that reconnect to, to who you are and that make you tick. Where's mm-hmm. your go-to place or, or thing yeah. that you do? Well, I have a, a new granddaughter, new to me, and her oh. name is her name is Marigold Bell. Oh my and, God, she's um, adorable. She they're in Austin, and we have a house in Austin, and so we drive back and forth. And I've I have visited Austin um, twenty five times in, uh, since she was born, <laughs> and so um, that's my go to. My thing is um, spending time with her, and I love rocking her to sleep, and it's um, really you know a very sacred time. And I'm I'm grateful for it, and I'm I never lose sight of the gratitude I have for the experience of of you know just being with her and and my daughter and her husband there in Austin and my wife. It's it's I'm I'm very grateful for that. Well, that's you know goes down to family and that connection and that love. So I mean, besides the fact she's adorable, that will make me tick too. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Goldie, that Goldie Bell, that's her name, Goldie Bell. Oh, so adorable. Well, congratulations on, on having that grand, yes. beautiful granddaughter on the business and all you do. And I really 
thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a guest on Back to Basics. Well, thank you. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Sean. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you, and until the next time.